Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Joshua Friedman. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rappaport Diamond Podcast. This is a special episode to mark the end of the year. We'll be reviewing the year in the diamond industry and the year on Rappaport.com. So I am joined by our senior news reporter, Leah Merovich. Leah, great to have you on this episode. Great to be here, Joshua. It's been quite a year. I mean, I guess we say that at the end of every year, but it has been quite a year. So we are going to talk about some of our favorite moments from this year in terms of, well, favorites, maybe not the right word, because some of them are serious issues. Some of them are maybe not the happiest of issues. But just to begin with, a lot has gone on this year. What would you say has been the most important or influential story that you've covered or read about in the diamond jewelry industry in 2023? I feel like actually this year, I know we say it at the end of each year, but I feel like this year there's been a lot more than usual. It's been a very busy year, but I think for me, one of the most important stories is Christie's sale of Heidi Horton's jewels. And I know that that's not usually something where you'd say, oh, it's a jewelry auction. It's a really big story. But I think it was the repercussions behind that story that really made it so important because when Christie's announced that they were going to sell her jewelry, it seemed like it was going to be a big affair for sales of 700 pieces of jewelry to highlight their starting with their Geneva Magnificent Jewel sale and they expected it to fetch over 150 million which in and of itself is big news just because it's the biggest sale of privately owned collection that they've ever had but what really happened behind the scenes was more so that Heidi Horton was married to Helmut Horton who was known to have links to Nazi Germany and that most of his business was built on businesses that he had taken away or bought out at a fraction of their costs that were owned by Jews who were forced to sell to Aryans. And a lot of people in the industry were quite up in arms about this sale and thought that it shouldn't go on. And Christie's had said that they would donate a large portion or significant contribution of the profits that they made to Holocaust survivors and to groups that promoted Holocaust research and education. But that really wasn't enough for most people, and they didn't feel that the sale should proceed. Christie's ended up going through with the first three of the four sales, and then they ended up canceling the final sale because of the uproar that it caused in society in general and in the trade also, but a lot of the places that they wanted to donate the money to, like the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial, refused to actually take the money because of where it came from. And I think that really shows that a sale isn't just a sale and it's not just jewelry and that often there can be other connotations behind it that people really need to pay attention to. And I think that it made the industry rethink what they may sell or you know, how they might go about doing business and what it actually means if, you know, the negative publicity and how it's regarded and what it can do to your business. I thought it was also quite an indication also of the extent to which we, so to speak, follow the money in the sense that it shows that the industry doesn't just view responsible sourcing as being, you know, what's going on in diamond mines today, but even a transaction from decades ago because of the way that that transaction is viewed that impacts the sellability of an item now you know 80 years later so it really was quite an important story for the industry and the extent of how we define responsible sourcing 
I agree. I think especially at a time now where, you know, there's so much going on in terms of what is a conflict diamond, how is it designated, that something like this shows that there's actually more parameters that could be applied to that than we originally thought. And I imagine that in the auction world now, the big auction is, they're going to consider more what they offer. So Joshua, what did you pick as your top story this year? The story also touches on the question of responsible sourcing, but we've seen increased debate throughout 2023 about Russian diamonds. And it's now, as we speak, almost two years since the beginning of Russia's war in Ukraine. And still discussion is going on about how to treat Russian diamonds. We know that early on after the invasion in February 2022, the US already implemented certain sanctions on Russian diamonds, but they didn't really cover everything because they only impacted rough diamonds that were imported directly from Russia, but not on anything that was polished in another place like in India. So really the debate throughout 2023 was when and whether there would be wider sanctions on Russian diamonds that would actually make it illegal to import Russian goods, particularly into G7, into Western countries, even if they'd been polished in another location. One thing we didn't see until right at the end of the year was EU, European Union sanctions on any Russian diamonds. And it was only really about a week ago in, in December that any sort of formal sanctions were imposed by the European Union on Russian diamonds. But there's a number of issues that came up throughout the year, particularly how to restrict the import of Russian diamonds. Diamonds are notoriously difficult to track, particularly the small ones. And so the question was, how can you take a rough diamond and know where that came from, but then also be able to trace where the polish came from once it's been to a manufacturing center and maybe traded many times. So there were a couple of main kind of solutions that were suggested, one by the World Diamond Council, one by the Belgian government and a few others for how this could be implemented. But really, this to me, this is one of the most important stories of this year is how to finally deal with this issue of Russian diamonds and had an impact on, on a number of areas. We also saw at the Kimberley process meeting that it was the first time in the history of the Kimberley process that they failed to publish a communique at the end of the meeting. Uh, that was in November, the communique being this final document that approves all of the decisions that were taken. Because of a disagreement over Russia and um, how to treat Russian diamonds, this communique was not issued and technically none of the decisions made at the plenary were technically approved. So uh, I guess another thing this reflects is there is a split in the world really about how to treat Russian diamonds with the Western countries wanting largely to keep them out of the market and then certain other countries that are closer to Russia or maybe allies of Russia that are happy for them to continue flowing and happy to continue buying them. So I think that's, it really touches on the same issue of responsible sourcing and how to define responsible sourcing. And as 2023 ends, still unclear how this uh, matter is going to be resolved. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's a very big issue. I agree. And I actually find it astounding that it's taken so long and that it's still in the process of being debated now. And as for the Kimberley process, I'm really not sure how they're going to ever reach a consensus because they need all of the state members to agree. And if they don't agree, then they can't move forward. And right now there is, as you mentioned, a divide. So I'm not sure how they'll overcome that. I know that it caused a lot of problems with the Responsible Jewelry Council when they were trying to figure out what to do with Al Rosa, who was a member of the Responsible Jewelry Council, but weren't necessarily deemed as being responsible anymore. And it took quite a long time for it to happen. So I think that probably it's going to be important for them to find some way of putting parameters into place that everybody can agree on that they can use moving forward if something like this happens again. Right. So one of the ten points of tension this year in 2023 was whether the Kimberley process will continue to be the main or even the only method for policing the diamond industry and ensuring that conflict diamonds don't 
enter the supply chain. And this is one of the things that the World Diamond Council has been promoting its own proposal for using documentation to ensure that countries can vouch for the origin of their diamonds and make sure that any diamonds that are entering the G7 countries are not of Russian origin. And then we also had the Belgian government that proposed a completely different method, according to which the all diamonds entering the G7 would go through Antwerp, where they'd be checked and stamped that these are not Russian diamonds, and that would make them legitimate for import into the G7. It's a little unclear how which of these is going to be used and how. It seems like at the moment the front runner is this Belgian proposal based on what we've seen from kind of EU documentation. But that certain countries, certain organizations, including the African Diamond Producers Association, have questioned this. From their point of view, it looked as though other organizations are stepping on the toes of the Kimberley process. So this has really caused an extra layer of disagreement in the industry. There's no shortage of questions about what the role is of the Kimberley process at the moment. And it's been criticized from all sorts of directions for many years. So there's nothing really new there. But what I wonder and actually even worry about a little bit is if people can't agree on a solution, if there are so many different solutions that are being implemented, is this going to cause more confusion in the industry, especially when consumers are looking for more transparency? And you're going to say, well, this was done by this method to ensure it's conflict-free, and this was done by this method from this place to ensure it's conflict-free, is it going to cause more confusion and make it more difficult for consumers to know that what they're buying is actually conflict-free and responsibly sourced? I tend to agree. When you buy certain products, you see certain responsible sourcing brands, labels that you recognize and you trust. And I think a lot of people recognize it in the diamond industry at the moment, there's a lack of that, that people don't really understand what the Kimberley process is. And aside from the criticisms of the Kimberley process itself that we've mentioned on many times, and that we've heard about many times in various parts of the industry. On this occasion, I think the idea is that the government should be doing it. It's just a question of whether it's actually feasible. So we've talked about some heavy topics today already, but there's another tragic event that happened in the second half of this year. And it's very real for us based here in Israel. It's been one of the most significant incidents of the last few months. It has. And just for anyone who doesn't know, our whole news team is based in Israel. And on October 7th, Israel was attacked by Hamas. And my 18-year-old son was called into war by the army. And I wasn't sure at that point how long it would be before I saw him again. And I was anxious, stressed, worried, nervous about him and also about how Israel would be perceived by the outside world and within the jewelry community as well. And there was some negativity, but for me, I think the highlight was seeing the support that Israel was given. The Israel Diamond Exchange and the Diamond Dealers Club hosted a Stand with Israel fundraising sale in New York. And there were so many designers that contributed pieces of jewelry to be auctioned off in support of Israel, much needed supplies by the army and for uh, supplies for displaced families. Even more, some really big global fashion icons, a lot of people in the fashion industry got together and signed an open letter urging members of the trade to take a stand against rising anti-Semitism and racism. People like Nikki Hilton Rothschild, Donna Karen, Rachel Zoe, and Bobby Brown, who are really big names in the industry and whose voices really carry weight. And I think for me, knowing that people cared and that there was support behind us really made a difference at a very difficult time. So it was, to me, a very important highlight of the year. What was it like, particularly right at the beginning, but it was, I found it was a strange experience and an unusual experience to be covering something when we were in the midst of it ourselves. How did you find that in the first few weeks? It is 
very strange, you know, um, aside of some... Uh, I used to watch a show called American Idol when I was younger and they had a live concert and I went and it was like being sucked into the TV show and it was a really odd experience for me. And this was something of that nature, just obviously not on a good level, but I felt like I was being sucked into the news in a sense. And it was really strange because outside my window, I'm hearing rocket blasts and booms going off and getting emergency sirens to go into the safe room. And then on the other hand, I'm writing about it for the news. And it was a pretty surreal experience. I think for a lot of us here at uh, Rappaport, it was hard, hard to focus on work for those, particularly in those first few days and weeks. So on a happier note, I wanted to highlight one of my highlights of the year, which was traveling to India in February. I went on the Young Diamantes trip to Surat in Mumbai. And it was actually quite a rarity for me because when I do travel, it tends to be for a very short period of time. It's you know, I think anyone who travels for business knows that you, you usually go where you need to go, get the work done, and then come straight home. And you're not really, the location is almost incidental. But this was actually a rare opportunity to go and spend a week and a half in India, kind of absorb the atmosphere of firstly Surat, which I hadn't been to before, which is the main manufacturing center in India, diamond manufacturing center, and understand the culture there, meet with manufacturers, go to some street markets, try cutting a diamond myself, all these things. And it was really, um, it was quite an experience. And then to come back to Mumbai, which is a very different culture, a much more cosmopolitan place, just very packed, much less spacious than Surat. And I think people have joked before, I always talk about the weather, but the weather in Surat is much nicer than the weather in Mumbai that I hadn't quite realized before. So I think that was my highlight of the year was to be able to spend time getting to know India and also getting to know some of the other people on that Young Diamond Tears trip. Talking of people, as we speak, we are about to publish our list of the most influential people in the diamond industry and jewelry industry in 2023, what we call the people of the year. We chose instead of a person of the year, we chose to pick a few different people of the year. These are people who have had a, an influence on the news, not necessarily for the good or for the bad, just that they've been important. So our, I was going to go through who our selections were, just for a bit of context for all of you listening. We picked Gina Drossos, CEO of Signet Jewelers. Feriel Zeruki, the president of the World Diamond Council. As I mentioned before, the World Diamond Council has had a big role this year in the whole question of Russian diamonds. Vipul Shah, who's the chairman of the GJPC, the Gem and Jewelry Export Promotion Council in India, which has had a big impact on the Indian industry's response to the big crisis we've had in the industry this year. It, was, it facilitated a, a two-month voluntary freeze on imports of rough diamonds in, into India, which greatly helped in stabilizing the industry uh, in the second half of the year. And then Mogwitsi Masisi, who's the president of Botswana. Botswana famously came to a 10-year sales deal with De Beers this year. It's not quite final, but it was a provisional deal with the beers. And then Gary Tolkowski, who is a Belgian diamond cutter, who unfortunately died this year. So he's really included for his great achievements in the, the decades running up to 2023, rather than what he did in 2023. And then finally, Narendra Modi, who is the prime minister of India. India obviously being an important market for jewellery. And, but in particular, he's best known this year for giving a 7.5 carat lab-grown diamond to uh, US First Lady Jill Biden. Uh, which uh, probably did a lot more for the marketing of lab-grown diamonds than many million dollars of marketing would have done. I've kind of got a few favorites from those. What about you? Do you have any 
Who out of those do you think had the biggest influence? Or do you think maybe I missed someone from that list? I don't know that I think you missed someone, but if you're asking me to play favorites, that's like asking me to pick between my children. It's a little hard. But um, if I had to pick someone just on sheer shock value, I think it would be Narendra Modi because the news the next morning was everywhere. I couldn't open a page on my internet without seeing it somewhere. And I think for me also, it was funny simply because when they said a green diamond, I think people didn't realize that they meant green in terms of that it was lab grown. So they considered it eco-friendly so much as they thought the diamond was actually the color green. Yes. We were one of many publications that fell victim to that. I just, uh, overarching, uh, interesting shock funniness of that whole story, I think, took the cake for me. But I also have to hand it out to Jenna Drosos because I think she has really come a long way since she started at Signet and turning the company around from a bit of, I hate to say it, but musty, dusty, uh, boring company to a much more relevant hip company where she's revamping all of the different banners and really focusing on who each client is for those banners. And instead of, you know, sort of having different price levels, but otherwise the banners are all basically the same, she's honing in on what makes each banner stand out. And I think that customers are really responding to that and it's really looking good for Signet. And we've been covering Signet for a long time. I mean, I just hit my six-year anniversary with the company, so six years of covering Signet, and I think this is the first time I've been excited about anything that they have to say. I'm sorry, Signet, I don't mean that in a bad way. Well, congratulations on six years at Rappaport. Um, I, I would agree with you. I, um, without this turning into a Gina Drossos appreciation club, we used to tune into these um, investor calls that they do after they publish their results four times a year, and they used to be pretty dull, I'm afraid. I, again, I apologize to anyone who uh, is offended by that. But now they're actually quite engaging. They're really a lot less jargon and a lot more actual real hard intelligence on the market. They have a list of 45 relationship milestones that they use to measure how far US couples are from getting engaged and how they use that market data to predict when engagements are going to happen and basically how to market engagement rings. And Signal also has been one of the majors that's really taken up lab-grown diamonds more than others. And they've, you know, they give a lot of intelligence also about how that market's doing. So a bit of a wave of appreciation to Signet. And obviously their sales did decline this year so far, but I think that's pretty much in line with the market or at least not even in line with the market. I think they probably, the results are probably a little better than the market. Do you have another favorite, Joshua? I know you told me that you had a surprise entry, so I'm waiting to find out who that is. I did. I did. I decided when I was putting together this list, I, um, I decided that we should only have real named people. You know how Time Magazine sometimes has um, person of the year will be like the internet user or something. So I, I decided we should have only named people. But for this one, I'm going to mention uh, bonus person of the year, which is the US consumer. It's a bit of a cliche because the US consumer is what determines the success of the diamond industry alongside the Chinese consumer and the Indian consumer, but the US being the biggest market. But um, as we've mentioned, there has been a crisis in the diamond industry this year. And one of the things that has made this crisis different from some other crises is that it's been largely demand driven. It's been driven by the fact that the US consumer has not been spending as much on diamonds as they have in the past. Whether that's because 
And this is actually the signet theory that it's because there was a lull in dating during COVID. And now as a result, three years later, there's a lull in engagements. Or it's just because of inflation, high interest rates. And the reality is probably it's just a combination of all these things. But really, the US consumer has been one of the key reasons why we've had these difficulties in the industry, alongside the fact that China has never really recovered. If I had allowed myself to include an unnamed person, that would have been it. So looking forward a little bit to next year, no one knows for sure what's going to happen next year. We can kind of all read the same thing to try and to get the consensus of the forecast. Leah, what, uh, at the very least, what do you hope will happen in 2024? Well, yeah, I was going to say, as I left my crystal ball in the other room, uh, I'm not sure of predictions in total, but in terms of what I hope will happen, I hope that we will have more transparency in the industry and a better definition of what a conflict diamond is, that the problems that arose this year and in the last couple of years will be solved in terms of not having to continue with, you know, taking everything as it comes in terms of sanctions and in terms of expelling somebody from the responsible jewelry counselor or something like that, that we have more rules in play that will take care of this moving forward so that it's an easier process. You know, I also hope that there'll be more promotion for marketing of natural diamonds, things that will resonate more with consumers and sort of bring back a little bit of the balance between natural and lab grown. And on that note, maybe I think an end to the ping pong game between lab grown and natural where both of them can, you know, coexist as separate entities in the market and, you know, people will buy whatever they want to buy and hopefully there'll be enough market share for both and it won't have to be a tit for tat. On a personal level, I think hopes going into the coming year are for a quick end to this war going on here in Israel and hoping to get my uh, new apartment in order. I've been here since May, but it's still not set yet. So that's my number one goal. What about you? You remind me of the time that I, uh, I don't remember who it was, probably with Avi Kravitz, our former senior analyst, and uh, Sonia Esther Sultani, our editor-in-chief, um, where I was asked for what my New Year's resolution was, and I said I wanted to get a shower rail. I never lived that one down. So, I mean, I think in terms of predictions, I think people are expecting a a recovery in the market next year, a restabilization, a rebalancing of supply and demand and inventories, although nothing's for sure. A few other specific things, I think more profit sharing between producer countries and miners, like we saw with, obviously with the beers, and potentially more profit sharing deals between mine owners and diamond manufacturers. But I think there's one specific thing that I'm it's not really a prediction as much as something that I'm watching closely, which is China. I think for the last year and a half, really, the industry has banked on China recovering. They had that you know, pretty devastating downturn during their lockdowns, the last of their COVID lockdowns. And when things reopened, there was expectations that the market would just come back into um, pent up demand. And it never really happened. And in fact, we're hearing more and more reports of consumers in China shifting to lab-grown because they want low price point jewelry. So I think one of the things I'm going to be watching very closely next year, what happens with China, starting with the Chinese New Year, which is on February the 10th. But uh, if we don't see more of a recovery this year, then I think a lot of those industries' challenges will just, will just continue into next year. So it's been a real pleasure speaking with you about this year and what's happened. There's been some great highlights of this year, some difficult parts as well. And uh, let's hope that 2024 brings 
the same level of excitement, but in a more positive direction. It's been great here too. A great way to wrap up the year and amen to your hopes for things taking a more positive turn in the coming year. So the, I think by the time this podcast ends up in people's ears, the, the holidays will be over. And so it's, I think it's, it's time to wish everyone a very happy new year and a successful 2024. Happy new year. Happy holidays. Happy everything to everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rappaport Diamond podcast. For more discussions, news and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us at rappaport.com. Follow Rappaport Group on Instagram and follow Rappaport on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes. Mm-hmm.